Welcome to the Antioch Austin podcast. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you. For more information about Antioch Austin, please check our website at antiochatx.com. Now here's Pastor J.D. Griffin. We're launching into a new series of talks called Why We Sing. And if you haven't heard uh, what's been going on in our family's life, uh, most of you probably know that my beautiful wife had a stroke two months ago. Uh, Tomorrow, we actually go into brain surgery um, where they're going to repair two aneurysms that were found because of the stroke. So yeah, you could say the stroke saved her life. Um, So be looking for that New York Times bestseller coming out probably in six to eight months. Holla at your boy. All right. But truthfully, there's been this kind of anthem that has emerged out of our family through this time, out of 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, starting in verse 9. And it really has been that we've experienced this passage of Scripture. It says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insult, in hardship, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And we have kind of summarized this verse as a family and, and begin to say, it's easy to be strong when you're not in charge of your strength. It's easy to be strong when you're not in charge of your strength. And really, these next couple of weeks in this Why We Sing series is hopefully going to give you some tools to feel like you know how to lean into the strength that's available for us in our weakness. Because God is desiring that we would walk around filled with faith and hope, regardless of what's happening to us or in us, because of who he is. When we are weak, he is strong. And so this whole concept of why we sing is going to really dive into this idea of worship. I mean, have you felt the power of music? Isn't it amazing how music can kind of take you places? Like you hear a song and like you're back, 1984. You know, like check this song out. Come on, y'all know this song? Anybody? Maybe a junior high dance on that throwback section? Y'all are all so young? Right? Look, I don't know where you are right now, but I know where I am, okay? I am in my best friend's room, Neil Anderson. We're dancing on top of his bed to this song, right? I hear this song and I am back, right? Isn't it amazing how music can do that? Now check out this song. Where are you right now? Seventh grade dance. Holla at you, boy. Hey. Not too close. Space for the Holy Spirit. Right? Come on, Monica Flores, 7th grade, my first dance. can see her eyes right now. Thank you, boys. Isn't it amazing how mute, I mean, look, you hear a song, and it's like, 
It has transporting power. I mean, seriously, I, I remember hearing that boys, to men, that boys to Men song on a cold day. I've had moments driving in the heat of summer. That song comes on. That memory hits me of that afternoon, and I can kind of feel the coolness of the air of that memory. Like music takes you places. Music can take you back, but here's what I want you to hear. Worship can take you forward. Right? Worship can take you forward. Music can take you back, but worship can take you forward. And, and what I want to do, if you have a Bible, I want you to find your way to 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15. We're going to inhale a lot of scripture this morning. So everybody take a deep breath with me. All right, I think we're going to be able to grab all of it because we are somehow going to dive in and trek through two clear chapters within 1 Samuel. Really, we're going to dabble into three, but really it's going to be about two. But the truth is, is that this shows us a lot about why we sing. 1 Samuel 15, a couple of people you're going to need to know about to really get the context of what's going on here. First is Samuel, right? The namesake. He, he's the guy. He, he's really super important in the Old Testament. Samuel was a prophet of God, right? And so what that meant is that how God communicated to his people before Jesus, that's known as the Old Testament, also referred to as the Old Covenant, is through a mouthpiece. He would anoint one person to then communicate to his people what was on the heart of God for them. Direction sometimes, sometimes correction, sometimes encouragement, sometimes clarity, but God would speak to a person that then would be a mouthpiece to his people. And that person in this moment is Samuel. Samuel was the prophet of God. We're going to be introduced very quickly in this story to Saul. Saul was the king of the people of Israel in this moment as Samuel is the prophet. Saul's the king, Samuel's the prophet, right? So here we go. We're going to find ourselves 1 Samuel 15. We're going to start in verse 1, and I want you to key in as we channel through this, is that Saul was an incredible leader. He, it said that he looked like a leader. He sounded like a leader. He was like buff and strong like a leader, right? He probably looked like Ben Hopkins. If you guys know Ben, sleeve tattoos. Looks like he's always about to beat you up, but he smiles. So you're like, maybe not. Right? He looked and felt like a leader. But how many of you know that he wasn't perfect? Right? None of us are. And Saul had a character flaw. We're going to identify his character flaw in a couple of verses. But this is what I want you to hear as you read this, is that Saul's flaw in his character was that he was almost obedient. Saul's character flaw was that he was almost obedient. Let's dive into our story. 1 Samuel 15, starting in verse 1. It says, Samuel said to Saul, I'm the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came out of Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them, but put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Time out. Time out. Because I think sometimes we read passages of scripture like this and you're like, whoa. 
right? Did anybody feel the intensity? Like destroy everything? Families, everything? Camels? I mean, what's a camel do? Camel means no harm. I mean, like what? Why, why must we destroy everything? To be honest with you, I think this is actually an incredibly important question to ask in our journey to really discover who God really is. Because there is a critical yet subtle distortion that has become popular in our culture. And that is that God has changed. That the God of the Old Testament is a harsh God. And the God of the New Testament is a soft God. The God of the Old Testament destroyed things. The God of the New Testament restores things. And instead of seeing it through the lens of the meta narrative of Scripture, the grand story of God in the clear picture that the grace that Jesus displayed for us on the cross was because of the righteous justice of God. You should read this and say, We need a Savior. Because we have distorted grace and tolerance. Right? We think, we read something like 1 Samuel 15, you're like, man, this doesn't sound very gracious. Isn't God a God of grace? I mean, look at Jesus. Jesus was like gracious. You know, he caught people like the woman caught in adultery, right? And he didn't treat her as the law said to be done. You know, like, I mean, where, where's the grace? How, where's the grace in 1 Samuel 15? Like, how is that? It was like, no, 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 it's not about grace. You read 1 Samuel 15, you're like, that's not tolerant. Because grace is the unmerited favor of God. Tolerance is that I'm going to accept what is different about you. Grace is God stood in the gap for us. Tolerance is I'm going to ignore that there's a gap. Come on, somebody. It's going to be tough today. I'm just going to throw that out there. It's going to get uncomfortable, okay? So this is going to get real. But the truth is, is that we have become subject to this distortion that really Deep down, the roots of this distortion removes our need for Jesus. If we did not need a Savior, then why did he come? Don't get caught up in this illusion that you read something that you don't understand. And you're like, wow, I don't get that. I wouldn't have done that. Well, it's because, A, you're not God. Okay, so just tuck that one away. But, B... When you read something like this, don't build your theology on God because of three verses. Build your theology of God in this entire book. And this entire book is a story of a group of people that ruined everything. And God in his grace, because of his righteousness, looked past their sin and took somebody, his own son, and he killed his own son, Jesus, because that is the righteous reconciliation that needed to be took so that we can experience grace. Somebody had to die. That's grace is that Jesus took it on the chin because we all deserve to experience the wrath of 1 Samuel 15. But Jesus stood in the gap and said, I'm going to take it. That's why this distortion that God used to be hard and now he's gentle is robbing us as a community, as the church of our power. Because when we start walking around thinking like we don't need a savior, then what message do we carry? We need to be saved. We, we need to be rescued. What we deserve 
is not what we receive. Because of Jesus. This is, this is a picture for us of a God who stands for righteousness and justice. And here's the thing. It's not like the Amalekites grew the short, drew the short straw or something. They represented everything that was opposite to the heart of God. We're talking about worship this morning. This is how the Amalekites worshipped. Their distortion of worship to their God was to, to sacrifice kids. They, they were raping pirates, basically. They would travel around and destroy everything, rape and pillage everyone. And they would take, they would remove kids from families and then they would sacrifice them to their God. I think God is saying, look, I know that what you put around you will eventually be what's inside of you. So remove it. Remove it. This is your job, King Saul. Remove the reality of the broken deprived distortion of worship, the broken picture of family, because I want to create a new way to live, a new way to see. And I'm aware of the human heart, King Saul. This is God talking. I'm aware of the human heart, and I know that what's around you will eventually become what's inside of you. So remove it. Remove it. Get rid of it. Don't even let the camels live. I thought that would get a chuckle. Grace is not tolerance. God hasn't changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, James tells us. We just need a Savior. What happens next is that Saul is half obedient. Saul actually goes and attacks the Amalekites, and we, and we find ourselves in the back end of that battle in verse 9, and it says, but Saul and the army spared Agag. For those of you guys who don't know, Agag was the king of the Amalekites. And not only did they spare the king, it says they spared the best of the sheep and the cattle and the fatted calves and the lambs and everything that was good. Is that what God asked him to do? Did God say, hey, go and, and, and take out everything that's weak, but everything that intimidates you, let it stand? Was that what God said? No, God said, go and destroy everything, even the camels. Take everything out. Remove everything. And here Saul went and attacked the Amalekites, but he spared King Agag, and he spared all of the sheep and cattle and calves and the lambs and everything it says that was good. And it says that they were unwilling to destroy those things completely. But everything that was despised and weak and totally uh, despised and weak, they totally destroyed. And then it says this in verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and he has not carried out my instructions. Almost obedience. I tell you one thing, man, I can relate to almost obedience. Do you have any residue in your life because of almost obedience? I know I do. I've got some residue. God has called me clearly to some things. I do half of them and then pay for that almost obedience. Because almost obedience is disobedience. 
Let's just call it what it is. Almost obedience is disobedience. My kids are, like, amazing at being almost obedient. Like, absolutely amazing at it. We have this, like, laundry system, which my wife devised brilliantly. Everyone's got a basket. Their name's on the basket. We fold their clothes. It goes in the basket. They have one job. Take your basket upstairs, take the clothes out of the basket, put them in a drawer, and bring us your basket. That's it. Simple. Do you guys think you could do that? That's all we ask them to do. They get paid for that. They get allowance for that. Right? So check it out. Hey, put your clothes up. Okay, Dad. You got it, Dad. Three minutes later, they come down with an empty basket. I think, wow, look at these amazing kids. Obedient, quickly, cheerfully, and completely. They're already back. They're smiling. And Ness comes in. Did it, Dad? I'm like, wow, thank you. Look, someone write a book about our family. Our kids do what they're told. This is amazing. And then like a couple weeks go by, and then the common theme begins to emerge. I don't have any clothes to wear. Like, hold on, you have enough clothes to like last you for your lifetime. How do you not have any clothes? And then I find myself, when you have a two-story house, it's amazing how you can get disconnected from the second story. Anybody with the two-story house? You know what I'm talking about? It's like in the same house, but it's like, I don't even go up there, man. It's like Afghanistan. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm, I say no to stands. And so I'm not even going up there. And so, like, I go into my kids' rooms, and it is as if a bomb exploded of clean clothes everywhere. And I'm like, wait, did you put your clothes away? And with confidence, they're like, no, but I put them in my room. And I'm like, no, 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 that's almost obedience, which equals disobedience, which means come see me in the office. Right? Almost obedience is disobedience. But let's just get it real for a minute. God gets a hold of your life. You begin to stir for the things of God. You're like, I want to pursue righteousness. I want to pursue purity. I want to go after the things of God. I want to honor people with what I say and what I see. But you keep watching Game of Thrones. You invited King Agag to live in your house. It's the same thing. It's exact same thing. You say you want to pursue righteousness, but you put yourself in a situation that you are going to fail. That's what half obedience does. It takes us from the covering of God and puts us in a place of temptation and traps. That's why God is after total obedience, is he knows that you can't handle it. He knew the people of Israel couldn't handle it. And so he's like, look, remove it. But we do exactly what Saul does. We let King Agag hang out in our house. And he's like sitting next to us on the couch, just whispering in our ear, hey, but at least you're not watching porn. We begin to justify away these things that are literally destroying us of our authority and power in society. King Agag. Agag should have been destroyed. The residue of half 
obedience. Half obedience exposes us to what God did not intend for us. Can I say that again? Disobedience exposes us to what God did not intend for us. It says in 1 Samuel 16, now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. He did his own thing. He was half obedient. He stepped outside of the covering of God. And it says that an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. He was outside of the covering and exposed to the torment of the enemy. I wonder how many things are tormenting us because we have been half obedient. I wonder how many things are eating us alive, driving us crazy because we have stepped outside of the covering and protection of total obedience in our lives. But what I want to focus in on is what happens next because it shows us a lot about worship. It shows us a lot about worship because Saul is tormented. He is being eaten alive by this evil spirit. And listen to the response of his friends, his homies, his compadres. They say, see, an evil spirit from the Lord is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the liar. And he will play. And when the evil spirit from God comes on you, you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, find someone who plays well and bring him to me. Remember, music takes you places, but worship takes you forward. Isn't it amazing that Saul knew what to do, but he didn't know how to do it? Saul obviously was not a worshiper, or he would have just worshiped. He knew that worship would move him forward. Everybody around him knew that worship would move him forward, but they knew him, and they knew that although he knew what to do, he did not know what to do. He didn't know how to get there. He did not know how to worship. He knew he needed it. He just had no idea how to do it. He didn't have a lifestyle of worship. I mean, we live in an unprecedented time. Honestly, I love the day and age we live in. I think we have the most potential of any generation to affect kingdom change all over the world. We're more connected than ever. At one click of a mouse, you can listen to the best preachers on any subject and any thought in the world. You have access to books beyond books. There's books on books. Books on books on books. People's responses to those books on books on books. We got worship music coming out everywhere from people. Sometimes that shouldn't even be playing it. I'm just saying. Not all worship is created equal. You know what I mean? And so, like, it's just like access, 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 access everywhere. And you know what? I love it. I love it. But hear me. Hear me. Those things are supposed to come to support your personal experience with God. They are not to be your personal experience with God. If you hit trouble and you're searching for a podcast, holla at your boy. You basically are saying, just like Saul did, find somebody who can play. You hit trouble, and you don't have a lifestyle of worship? Jesus said, call upon his name. Call upon the name of the Lord. Don't say, find me somebody who can play. But this is what we do as a society, man. We don't read the Bible anymore. People will quote people's quotes of the Bible. People don't read the Bible anymore. We wonder why we're not effective. We wonder why we're losing our authority. Because it's, it, we need to get in this book. 
We need to be a people that when we hit trouble, we don't respond like Saul and say, man, I know that worship moves me forward. I've heard that. And so I need to, 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 to get around worship. We need to be like, no, I know worship moves me forward. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to dive in to the presence of God because check this out. After the spirit of God departed from, from Saul, Samuel goes and finds David and he anoints David to be king. And it says that he poured oil on his head. And from that day, God came upon David in power. And then David becomes the guy that they find to come and to sing over Saul. So you have David anointed by God, but the difference between David and and Saul is that David was a worshiper. David went through moments of torment too. Man, you read through the Psalms who David authored most of those, and you were like, man, this guy struggled with depression. He, He did not have an emotionally stable life, but he landed in this stable place. Come on, somebody. David landed in a stable place because he was a worshiper. So when torment came on him, he didn't say, you know what, find me somebody who can play. David was like, I'm going to play. Listen to the difference in the response that David gives in his moment of trouble in Psalm 42, starting in verse 6. He says, my soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember from the land of Jordan, from the heights of Haram, deep calls out the deep and the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have washed over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me. A prayer to God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forsaken me? me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. That's what it sounds like to play your own harp. We need to play our own harp. When we hit moments of trouble, you don't need to be finding somebody who can play a harp. You need to play your own harp. When torment comes, disappointment comes, depression comes, difficulty comes, let the personal worship that's within you begin to drive you through. Let the song. Excuse me, let the songs begin to push you from where you are into all that God has called you to be. Because here's what's about to happen. And I want you to hear this. Worshippers kill giants. Worshippers kill giants. Saul and David are getting ready to encounter the same giant and have two dramatically different responses. One was a worshiper. And one said, can you find somebody who can worship for me? And they saw the giant dramatically different. And look, I just want to be honest with you. We live in a day and age where we're facing giants daily. Giants that bring intimidation. Giants that bring fear. Giants that hold you in traps of addiction. Giants that lie to you and tell you to keep Agag around. Don't be legalistic. Be a person of grace. Talk like a sailor. It's all good. God knows your heart. As the church, we're not supposed to tolerate giants. 
We're supposed to cut the heads off of giants. And worshipers kill giants. Worshipers kill giants. Samuel hears the word from God to anoint Saul. Saul becomes king is almost obedient, steps outside of the covering of God, God's perfect plan for his life, becomes subjects to the torment of the enemy. And what would have held him through his half obedience to total obedience, he then began to look for in other people. You see, if Saul would have been a worshiper, when the pressure and the fear would have come upon him, he would have found his strength in God. He would have called upon the name of the Lord, his help, but he didn't do that. He called upon the name of others to help him. We need each other. We do. Hear me. You can't do this alone, but your foundation is Jesus. Your foundation is Jesus. And so David comes and does what he had already been doing. He had already been a worshiper. That's why they had heard about him. That's why they brought him to Saul to bring relief in his torment because David was doing what he had been doing. If he was facing a giant, if he was watching the shep, if he was watching the sheep as a shepherd, David was a worshiper. And worshipers are not intimidated by the attacks of the enemy. They're infuriated by the attacks of the enemy. And David hears what's bringing Saul to his knees and his tent behind his army in the battleground. David goes to serve his brother's lunch and he hears the attacks on the character of God, the God that he knew, the God that he worshiped, the God that he talked to. And he says, who's going to let this dude keep saying this? Because this is what worshipers do. They can't stand by in moments of unrighteousness and just look past it. They stand. And David found himself in a fight that he didn't see coming because his heart was a heart after God. I want to encourage you, church. I believe it's time for the church to realize that we need to play our own harp. We need to play our own harp. We need to have an internal system of strength so that when the giants of our day come against us, we're not intimidated, but we're infuriated. When fear comes against you, you say, no, 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 no. I won't be intimidated by the spirit of fear. I'm going to stand on the truth of who God has demonstrated himself to be to me, and you are about to die because worshipers kill giants. Don't deal with your giant like King Agag. Don't let your giant hang around and try to deal with it. Don't say like, you know what, this part of it, I can deal with this part, you know, the weak stuff and all that, but I'm just going to let him just kind of hang out. No, worshipers kill giants. Worshipers kill them. And so it's time for us as the church to rise up and say, you know what, I'm going to worship God, not just on Sunday, not just at Life Group. I'm going to worship God on Monday. I'm going to worship God on Tuesday. I'm going to stand in my living room on Wednesday. I'm going to declare the goodness of God on Thursday. I'm going to make the rightness declares of Jesus in my home on Friday because I'm going to have a lifestyle of worship. It's not just what I do. It's who I am. And that lyre that I'm learning how to play, that little harp that I'm tickling whenever I find myself in moments of turmoil all of a sudden becomes a weapon 
If you need a weapon, you might need to start learning how to play your own harp. You feel like the enemy is running over you, learn to play your own harp. You feel like you're getting run over, learn to play your own harp. Victory is your destiny. Can I just declare that over you? Victory is your destiny. Come on, somebody. Victory is your destiny. It's not just about letting the giants run over you. Let the worship in you begin to give you the strength to destroy the giants that are in front of you. Stand to your feet.